You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 465 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Welcome. Happy Monday. Um... Today's an interview I did with Allison Wood about her memoir, Being Lolita. I am so excited for you guys to both listen to this interview and also read Allison's book. Um, it is an incredible uh, story, a true story. Obviously, it's a memoir. Um, when she was in high school, she um, was essentially groomed by a high school teacher at her school um, and he used the book Lolita as sort of, um, an introduction icebreaker way to sort of connect with her is probably the best way to put it. And, um, so her book is both about her relationship that happened during that time, um, her relationship with the book Lolita, which, you know, naturally has changed over the decades as, um, she has gotten older and, and had a better understanding of that relationship that she had. And also, you know, like where her life has gone and how it's changed since getting out of um, that situation. I had a wonderful time talking to Allison. Um, as I mentioned to her in the podcast, Lolita is one of my favorite books, which is always a very strange sentiment to have um, because of the, the content of the book. But it's just so beautifully written it's impossible to um ignore Nabokov's um writing style and it's just fantastic so I I had a wonderful time talking to her you'll learn about her you'll learn about her book we talk a little bit about Lolita so if you want to get a hold of us wow that was really loud I apologize Um, I'm like watching the uh the sound thingy as I'm recording this. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on social. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at probooknerds. Um, and you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Um, if you missed the live conversation we had last week with uh, Geely and Kimberly, the authors of I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, we do have the recording available. It was our um, episode uh, on this past Thursday. So whether you missed that live thing, you can now listen to it. Or if you were there and want to listen to it again, we have that available for you. So I think that's all I'm going to say because I want to get to this interview. Um, so I hope you all enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. <music> Hi, everyone. This is Jill. And with me today, I have Allison Wood. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Pigeon Pages, an NYC literary journal and reading series. Her essays have been published in the New York Times, Catapult, and Epiphany. And she holds an MFA in fiction from New York University. Her first book, Being Lolita, is out 
August 4th. Allison, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So can you start by giving our readers a brief introduction to Being Lolita? Being Lolita is a book about power at its core. Um, uh, Being Lolita tells the story of when I was 17 years old in high school and became enthralled with this English teacher in my high school who was um, a little bit older. He was just under 10 years older than me and it became, it quickly became a very abusive uh, predatory relationship and he used Lolita in a lot of this grooming. He gave me the book. He told me it was a beautiful story about love. He told me that it was a story about us, that I was his Lolita. And at 17, I thought this was the height of romance. Um, I didn't know what an unreliable narrator was. So I literally did not understand what was happening in the book. Yeah. yeah. And the book uh, tells that story and our uh, following quote unquote relationship that became deeply, deeply emotionally, physically and sexually abusive. Um, And then it, goes on to follow the rest of my life and how that's impacted me. Um, And now I teach uh, creative writing. I work with undergraduates. I work with um, adults. And it just how it's impacted the rest of my life. Yeah, I I always feel weird saying this sentence, but Lolita is one of my favorite books. It's just so beautifully written. um, But It's a story that is often misinterpreted. And I think, you know, when I first read it, I was probably, I don't think I was in high school. I think it was maybe in college. And even then I still didn't, I didn't understand what was really happening because, you know, it's, it's told in such a way that you're not necessarily supposed to like, you know, it's an unreliable narrator. It's it's Humbert's story. Um, But even now it still ends up on lists of like best love stories and best romances. And it really just speaks so much to the sexualization of young girls that happens both in the book and in our world now. Very much so. I completely agree. Um, You know, I think that Lolita is incredibly misinterpreted in our society. People, I mean, the first vanity, one of the first uh, reviews of it was from Vanity Fair that called it the greatest love story of our century. And I mean, it is, in reality, it is a story about kidnapping, about rape, about pedophilia. Everyone dies at the end. I mean, this is not romance. It is not. (laughs) There is nothing about romance in this book. And while, yes, the book is beautifully written, although personally, I I think it could be cut quite a bit. Nabokov very famously uh, hated editors and did not allow anyone to touch his work. and I think it could have lost quite a bit personally. Um, but part two does go on. Let's part it two. Does. It does. It does. Um, but I mean, I think there is a deep, deep misunderstanding of Lolita. And I think that's also shown in our larger societal context because of things like Lolita fashion, which is this sort of like cutesy adult woman being like sexualized as a young girl with these really short skirts and ruffles and pink and thing and things um and things like Kat Von D has uh Kat Von D's makeup line has a Lolita uh lipstick that's this very deep red and we talk about Lolita as this sort of slutty girl 
and she's the one who's in charge. She seduces this man and Lolita as a dangerous figure, but she's a victim. At, at, the, at the core of the story, she is a victim. So I really tried to take back that narrative and tell the story from, in some ways, Lolita's point of view, and also try to ask the question, what would have happened to Lolita if she had survived? Mm -hmm. Because she doesn't in the book. Um, she dies at the end and of childbirth, not from Humbert, but from somebody else, she dies in childbirth. And I mean, I structured my book after Lolita, after the Nabokov. So there's a part one in both books that is sort of the extended grooming, seduction, quote unquote, period. Then the crux or the shift in between part one and part two is when they have sex for the first time, when I had sex with my teacher, and then when uh, Humbert, Humbert uh, sleeps with Dolores Hayes, which is her actual name. Her name is not actually Lolita. Um, and then the second half of both books is, in a lot of ways, this extended road trip. Um, and trying to not be caught. And that was what happened with the teacher and I, and that was also what, what Nabokov wrote um, about Humbert and Lolita doing, just like this constant road trip time, trying not to get caught. But then, you know, I didn't die. So I get a part three. And <laughs> part three is the story of how this has impacted my life and how I went through a long journey of understanding what actually happened to me and what actually happened in the book and how that has changed my life. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I loved the way it was structured like that. And you do, I mean, and it, it made me laugh when in your book, you're talking about how part two and Lolita just goes on and on and on because it's such a very, yeah. <laughs> very long road trip. <laughs> Nothing really happened. It's just sort of this, it's pages of description of, I don't know. I think it, I think it goes on. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's interesting. You know, you mentioned how, you know, Lolita died or Dolores dies. We know this from the beginning of the book. Um, but the teacher would sort of skip that part yep. for you as if, you know, like he knew that probably wasn't a part we should mention. We should not mention the part that Dolores does not get out of this alive. We're just going to skip that part and just go into her relationship with Humbert, um, or probably more Humbert's relationship with her. And I, that's just so, I think that speaks to a lot of that power of, of what he was doing. Yeah. And the funny thing is, a lot of readers don't realize that she is dead at the end. Because it's introduced in the introduction, which is supposedly written by this, you know, preeminent psychologist who is now looking at Humbert's diaries. Oftentimes readers skip that part. They, they just skip it. They go straight to the, you know, the quote unquote book, um, which is actually Humbert's diaries. And also a lot of readers don't realize that's exactly what's happening. But in the introduction, you're told that she dies, but you're told that Mrs. Robert Schiller dies in childbirth, which she is not referred to as until basically the penultimate chapter of the book mm -hmm. because that is her husband's her new husband's name but you don't even he's referred to as dick right right I, so, yeah you know unless a reader gets to the end and then goes back to the beginning you really have no idea that she's dead yeah so i think it's it's a very manipulative book just at its core i think and i think that was also the point it wanted to sort of 
show what literature could do mm -hmm. and the power of literature and language and it's incredibly effective but i also think it's incredibly misread and incredibly misunderstood and you know we talk about it from a humbert point of view as opposed to actually engaging with the real text which is this awful story right yeah yeah um yes agreed and i think like it's so effective that it just is completely missed a lot yeah <laughs> just and the other thing is i also i really believe like this is 2020 a book can be both beautifully written and awful yes, <laughs> yes agreed yeah it, it, we can hold both at once it's not like it has to be one or the other which i think also is why lolita because uh, becomes such a point of contention and argument and um you know frustration in some time in some ways because it doesn't being a story about traumatic awful events doesn't mean it cannot be beautifully and expertly crafted it it can be both and i believe that it is both so. right Yes. Um, so, you know, your book is a memoir about a relationship you were involved in that, you know, was similar to the one that happens in Lolita. It's structured like that. I imagine it's probably, it was a very tough topic to write about just in general, but especially now during this particular political and cultural climate when so many of these stories were being discussed. Definitely. Yeah. And it's funny, I knew I was going to write this book for years. I knew I was going to write this book within a couple of years after the relationship was over. I knew I was going to write this book and I knew it was going to be called Being Lolita. I'm probably one of the only people I know whose titles have stuck. It, you know, it's very famous mm -hmm. in your book, you know, over the years, your title shifts and shifts and nope, my title has been Being Lolita <laughs> the whole time. But I genuinely, when I was, you know, 20, 21, uh, thinking about this book, I thought it was going to be a love story. I really did. I thought this was going to be a complicated, difficult love story, but I still thought like, this is a story about love. And it wasn't until I began working with teenage girls. I worked at a boys and girls club. I did a, I was an AmeriCorps director, um, working in domestic violence issues with teenagers, actually, that I began to realize oh, I was not this powerful, sexy creature. I was a 17-year-old girl. And if you take a look at actual 17-year-old girls, not the quote-unquote 17-year-olds on TV, which are usually in their 20s, if right. you look at an actual 17-year-old girl, I mean, there is, and this is not to take away young women's agency, maturity, in, intelligence, any of those things. But there are very few teenage girls that I would describe as powerful, in charge of their sexuality. Um, you know, I, and I began to understand who I was at the time. And I began to rewrite my narrative and understand my life and myself as a teenager better. And it was very, very difficult. It was very hard work. Um, yeah, and I, I had to reread all of my high school journals I was lucky in some ways in that I was writing a lot during that period. So I had like a dozen journals. And if you have ever read your teenage journals, it's oh, yeah. who that is yeah. painful. <laughs> it is not a pleasant process. It is not. It is not. <laughs> no, it is not a pleasant process. I mean, it was, it was horrible. Um, and then rereading 
all of the notes and the letters and the emails and all of these things that I had luckily kept for the purposes of writing this book. Um, it was, it was horrible. Um, and having all of that in front of me, like literally in front of me, concretely, these pieces of paper and rereading these things really underscored to me, this was not a story about love. I was being groomed. This was an incredibly abusive relationship from the start. And it was, it was really tough to write. Yeah, it was really tough. Did you ever consider writing it as a novel to kind of separate yourself a little bit? People ask me that all the time. <laughs> people ask me that a lot. No, people ask me that a lot. Um, but no, I always knew it was a memoir because I really truly believe that part of the power of this story is the fact that this actually happens. This is not just some literary, beautiful fantasy. These sorts of things happen. Uh, students are abused by their teachers constantly. Um, every single Every single undergraduate class I've, I've taught, which is about a half dozen now, um, create, undergraduate creative writing course, none of my students know what I was, none of them knew what I was working on. I did not talk about my writing project in class, but every single semester, there would be at least one young woman who would reveal to me either in a poem or an essay or in office hours, she would talk about how she had been preyed upon, abused by a, an authority figure, be it a teacher, a coach, um, a, you know, an instructor, a tutor, some older man. And as I was working on this in my MFA and another writing workshops, every single workshop, at least one woman would come up to me and say, this, this is such an important story because this happened to me. This is pervasive. Mm -hmm. It happens constantly to so many people, yet we do not talk about it. I think something that's really interesting is that we've, we've gotten better, I think, through the Me Too move, movement of talking about celebrity predators, mm -hmm. like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, um, you know, just, what, two weeks ago, there was the Chris Delia mm -hmm. sort of scandal. We've gotten much better about talking about famous men who do this. But I think we're still pretty bad at talking about the predator who works at our schools, who lives down the street. Um, and I think by focusing on celebrity, we're able to create a distance for mm -hmm. ourselves and say, oh, this happens, you know, and it's like, no, this happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, part of it is we do live in this culture that sort of over-sexualizes teenage girls and then I think teenage girls we sort of internalize some of that and so when you do find yourself in a situation where there is uh, an older man who's an authority figure of some kind who starts to set his attention on you um, it you know like it does feel like we're lucky or you know, or you do want to believe that you have that power to kind of seduce, quote unquote, um, this older man, which is just sort of, yeah, it's just this cultural thing we live in. And it's why it's so pervasive. And I think we don't talk about it is because it's just so ingrained in what we do. And we're all accountable for that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I completely agree. And when this happened to me, I, I thought I was so special. I blossomed under his attention at first because I was very vulnerable 
Um, I had dealt with some really serious depression in, in earlier in high school. I had been away in my junior year to a therapeutic day school. I'd been so depressed. I wasn't getting out of bed. I was a cutter. You know, I, I was in a tough place. So when I came back to school my senior year, I was very isolated. Um, I was very vulnerable. And I also really, really wanted to prove myself that I was smart, that I was capable, that I could do this. So in a lot of ways, I was really a perfect victim. I was mm -hmm. super easy to get picked out. <laughs> so you get picked out as like, aha, her. Um, and then, you know, I also believe that, and this is patriarchy. We yeah. teach women consciously, overtly, that their power is in their looks. Uh, women's power is in their sexuality. Women's power is in their ability to reproduce, which is innately about sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with, and I think that trickles down pretty clearly to young women because we teach young women that you know, well, when you start to look older, when you develop breasts, you know, all of that happens. That's when you start to become powerful. That's when you start to get attention, um, and that's you know, that's your power. So. And I think, again, I, I would like to believe that we're doing better about this, but I don't, I don't know if I actually believe that. And I think in that way, we are all accountable. Yeah. Even with babies, you know, girl babies. Oh, she's so cute. Oh my God, look at that beautiful little thing. She's so pretty, but you don't, you don't coo over boys that way. Right. You know, um, it goes down to the toys that we give children, girls, play dress up and play with dolls and put on makeup and boys get trucks and construction things. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Know, it's pervasive in our entire culture. And I think by talking about what's happening in our own communities to our own teenagers, that makes us all accountable. And that's tough. It is tough. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I mean, this idea of, women's sexuality being a dangerous or not that it is but being treated the yeah. idea of it is obviously not new you know you think about books like the handmaid's tale that's sort of the whole thing about it is that women's sexuality that book's 30 years old and and we're still like having these conversations that it's just not it's just not being really seen yeah. you're getting closer but it's it's still not there I completely agree. I completely agree. And now we'll take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsor. Support for professional book nerds comes from Lord Jones, makers of the world's finest CBD products. CBD is all the rage these days, but pioneering brand Lord Jones is considered the gold standard. For years, they've been changing people's lives with their premium CBD products. From world-class skincare to tinctures and gel capsules to decadent gumdrop confections. If you're curious about what CBD can do for you, trust me, you want to start with the best. Lord Jones is crafted with the highest quality ingredients and premium hemp-derived CBD that's lab-tested for purity, strength, and consistency. 
In fact, Laura Jones has been featured in the New York Times, People, Vogue, Vanity Fair, and more. And now they're inviting you to experience the finest CBD products available. Go to lordjones.com slash PBN to get 25% off your first order. Go to lordjones.com slash PBN for 25% off your first order. It's lordjones.com slash PBN. One of the things I think your book does well is attempt to explain why it it takes some people so long to leave abusive relationships. Um, And part of it is because when you're in the middle of one of those, you don't really know what's happening. Sometimes it takes, you know, a much longer time. But, um, you know, there's a scene where Nick comes to visit you at uh, college and I'm not going to spoil anything, but something happens and you even admit to your readers, like, I wish I could tell you that this was the moment where I left and I didn't. And I think that's, I think that's the power of memoir though, being able to reflect back and look and say, I wish I could tell you this is what happened next, but it's not. And yeah, that's, that was really a powerful moment for me when I was reading. Yeah, I deeply believe that the power of memoir is you can both have a point of view and then also a point of telling. So I really stuck close in part one and two to 17, 18-year-old me. I wanted to try to deeply embody, and this was a very painful experience. I imagine. (laughs) I to deeply embody my 17-year-old self and the my gullibility my naiveness my misunderstanding of myself and the world and this book um i tried really hard to inhabit that and i really and i tried really hard for that to be my point of view in parts one and parts two but i also made a point to you know zoom out and have these moments where my point of telling was me at 37 Mm -hmm. saying things like exactly that reader i i wish i had told you that i had left but I stayed right Um, and I think that's I think that's the real power of memoir and why I felt very strongly that this should be a memoir because I think that point of telling is really important and isn't utilized as much in fiction and if I just told it as a story it would just be point of view the entire time you know no that makes that makes sense yeah and and I think that undercuts the power and the point of this story I think um yeah, no, that, yeah, that was one of those moments where I was like, this, as a memoir, this is, it, yeah, it was a, it was a powerful moment for me when I was reading it. Um, I know that when your, when your publicist first emailed asking if I'd like to interview you, she sent me um, a copy of the book and I looked at the cover and I immediately was like, that is a really, really good cover for oh, this you. book. <laughs> but I, I think, but I, and I think it's like multi-layered if you, you know, look at it in, in the construct of your story, but also the story of the book, Lolita, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about the red sunglasses, the heart shapes, yeah. which don't actually appear in the book. It's sort oh. of a, say Hollywood. <laughs> it's a Hollywood, you know, um, but yeah. it's so iconic. But then on your cover, they're cracked, which just yeah. speaks like volumes to what is sort of, there's just so many layers there. It's such a simple cover, but it's really, really well done. I love my cover. Yeah, I love my cover. With all covers, there were a couple other ones. 
um, that just weren't right. One of them was really beautiful and it had these gorgeous pink flowers and being the font was almost like the Hollywood font of the mm-hmm. Hollywood It was really beautiful, but I felt like it looked kind of like a novel and I was afraid, well, I'm just another like lady flower book. Um, you know, that's it. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I love the glasses and it is so funny because it's that scene where you think of her having the glasses it's the language is what my Riviera love peering over sunglasses it does not say they are heart-shaped glasses mm-hmm. in the Stanley Kubrick movie she is not wearing heart-shaped glasses in the actual film it was just used on the poster and became deeply connected to our larger idea of Lolita and what we think of when we think of Lolita that you know young girl with the heart-shaped glasses sucking on a lollipop yeah you know phallic imagery just a smidge um which again underscores this idea of like oh she's dangerous she's powerful she's in charge it's like yeah that's that's not the story um but yeah no i love the glasses and it was actually it's funny it was a friend of mine um she had the idea for this years ago and after we did a couple covers and i was like no these are lovely but i feel like you're not quite right I suggested it to my editor and I was like, you know, I have this idea. And at first I think she was kind of lukewarm about it. <laughs> she gave it to the, the fancy, incredibly talented graphic designer at, Key, at um, Flatiron, this wonderful guy named Keith. And so he ordered some heart-shaped glasses like just off of Amazon and had varying levels of smashed. And <laughs> made, you know, apparently he just like had a fun day. <laughs> smashing glasses and took that amazing photo and it I think it's such an iconic powerful cover I am so happy with the cover it, it is it is um but talking about the you know the movie poster Lolita is one of those books that has over the decades has so many different covers yeah. both mm-hmm. American and international versions dozens and, and dozens a lot of, I think, the misinterpretation about the book comes from the way that it's sold. Like you had said, you you know, there were specific covers you didn't want because it felt like a novel. Some of the covers for Lolita, you like, you pick that up, you think it's going to be about yeah. this, like, about this powerful girl who seduces a man because that's the way that Dolores is presented on the cover. Yeah. No, I completely agree. When I was, so normally when you're an author working with your publisher about a cover, they give you like a little questionnaire, you know, where it's like, what are some things you hate? What are some things you love? Like very simple. I did that. But then I also created a 36 page PowerPoint of (laughs) examples of covers that I loved, covers that I hated, um, trends in book covers that I was like, no, okay. Um, I tried to give examples of possible images from the book or, um, you know, items or things that could be interpreted into a cover. And then I also did like, I don't know, six or seven pages just of covers of Lolita. A cup, like two pages of ones that I was like, I love these covers. And a lot of those were the ones with like this really beautiful font. There was one that, oh, this is one of my favorite covers of Lolita. It is sort of looking up into a corner of a room and the room is painted pink. Yes, I've seen that one. It's a good one. Oh, Mm -hmm. oh, I love that cover. I love that cover. Um, And there's another one that's a smashed lollipop, like a heart-shaped pink lollipop. I love that one. But then I also had multiple pages of just no. And they were 
ones that had like parts of a woman's body. Um, I hate that trend, like only like partial parts of a body. Yeah. Ones with Lolita, very, very sexy, partially nude in a swimsuit, you know, any the heart-shaped glasses with the lollipop. I was like, no, 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 no phallic yeah. imagery here. Um, there was, there's one uh, cover of Lolita where she's naked, like lounging on a chaise and there's a cat and I'm super into <laughs> the cat, but I was like, uh-uh, like no way, no way. Yeah. I was like looking through a keyhole and like a very sexy girl on the other side and yeah. I was like, no, 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 none of this. No, no, no. <laughs> so I was very clear with <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's good ideas about the cover yeah. yeah I think well that's okay I think that's allowed especially with something like this you know um it's easy to make it a really sexy cover and you know I also wasn't against it being kind of a sexy cover like I'm a huge fan of the um Alyssa Nutted um co- oh god I'm forgetting the title of the book now I can't believe this but it's it's the close-up it's the close-up of like a man's button-down shirt with um it's lightly unbuttoned mm-hmm. and, like it, it is strangely very sexy <laughs> very sexy even though it's just like a buttonhole and a button uh-huh. but very sexy and I was like okay something like that I am okay with if you want to go sexy be like classy sexy you know? <laughs> no no like naked women or even right. naked women or parts of a woman's body no right yeah. yeah, I keep thinking about the sort of, of all the covers, probably the saddle shoe one is the yep. the one that's the most well-known where... That was the one that the teacher gave me. Yeah. It's 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 effective in many yeah. ways, but it also, you, okay. you look at it and you're like, that's a very young girl and she's posed, like her, her, there's something about her knees are just like in a certain way where you're like, that looks like it should be a, like sexy, but I don't think it's supposed to be, but it should be and it's just... Yeah. Well, and she's in the midst of twirling mm-hmm. as well. So it makes it seem like she has some sort of agency. Mm-hmm. The fact that she's mid-twirl and also, you know, then sort of suggesting dancing, suggesting this sort of, these choices. It's a very subtle, but I think, again, it also, it, it gives you this idea of like, well, she's trying to get attention. Right. Her choice. And I think that she is trying to get attention because she's in a really shitty situation. Right. You know, yeah. Her mother is having a rough time. Um, she's a teenager. She's 14. And it's like, I'm sorry, every 14 year old is having a hard time. There's right. no <laughs> all right. teenagers from like middle school to high school. It's a fucking rough time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's a rough time. So she did need support. She needed attention. She needed, but she needed care. She didn't need to be fucked. And yeah. You know, I was looking for attention. I was looking for support. I was looking for someone to feel like somebody cared about me, but I wasn't asking the teacher to fuck me. Right. You know, like that wasn't what I actually wanted. Right. Right. Yeah. Which, like you said, you were sort of, you know, you came, you, your senior year, you came out, like you came to school at a very vulnerable point in your life and you were just sounds terrible but you were kind of an easy target you know for I definitely (laughs) was I was a very easy target looking back once I began to really understand who I was and again this was in many ways through working with teenage girls through having students um as undergrads because even though they're in college many of them are only 18 or 19 they're not you know real grown-ups 
um, again, not to disavow their agency, their right, right. intelligence, but you know, most of them have not paid rent. They have not lived on their own. They, many of them have never cooked their own meals. Some of them don't know how to do their own laundry. You know, they haven't had a full-time job. Like they're, they're not full-fledged adults yet, which right. is okay. Like that's fine. But like, even though, even though the consent issue is technically it's legal, technically by the time we slept together, it was the day after I graduated, it was legal, but it was still deeply wrong. Right. And he should have gotten fired and he should have never been allowed to work with students again. And whenever I hear about professors taking advantage of undergraduate students or even students in graduate programs, I am deeply, deeply upset by this. And I think it is pervasive and it's so frustrating because we are not. And again, I think it's because it's easy to talk about celebrity, easier to talk about famous people who this happens to. It's so much harder to talk about. This is in our own schools. This is happening all around us. Right. So. And I think, you know, when you talk about the consent, I think that's part of it is that once you are 18, 19, 20, it is legal. Like you are allowed to make that decision and you want to believe that you're making that, you know, because you're, you're an adult legally um, and you don't want to believe that you're being taken advantage of by someone in a position of power. Of course not. And that was something that I really struggled with facing as I wrote the book was that, you know, the two options were for how this happened were incredibly painful. One was I was stupid. I mean, I know I wasn't, but, but, but right, this, right. this was how I was looking at myself. Right. I was right. like, so one version is I was really stupid and I fell for this and it was my own fault. And, or, and, um, you know, and one version of the teacher, of the teacher's point of view was, well, he didn't know any better. He really thought this was okay. Even though he'd gone to Columbia, he'd gone to Cornell, <laughs> he was an English teacher. He still thought Lolita was a story about love. Mm -hmm. But then the other side was, I was groomed and taken advantage of. And, you know, this horrible thing happened to me. I was victimized. And the teacher knew what he was doing this entire time. And both of them are equally awful. They are. Both yeah. of them are awful. So it was really hard to face that and yeah. reckon with that on a personal level. Yeah, that's a lot to process. Yeah. Even like 20 years down the road. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But luckily, I have a great therapist. And my family has been very, my family and friends have been incredibly supportive. I have this wonderful community of other women and non-binary writers who have been with me this entire time and supportive. And, you know, whenever I work with um, people who are working on memoirs, working on creative nonfiction, especially if it's at all traumatic, my first piece of advice is have a good therapist. Mm -hmm. Have a good <laughs> therapist because even though writing about your life, writing about trauma can feel very therapeutic and there is, you know, writing can be incredibly therapeutic. But when you go from writing for yourself to writing for an audience, thinking about publishing, be it essays, a book, whatever, it changes. It's not about you anymore. And you have to be able to then separate yourself from the work and do what you need to do to make it accessible to a reader, to make it understandable, to make it be something that readers 
and editors and librarians and teachers can connect with. And that's really tough to do if you're not ready. I think that's a whole other set of work after just writing the thing, being right. able to step back and edit it and accept edits. And so, you know, it's so hard because it's like, this is my life, this is what happened to me. Yeah. But no, you, you cannot be doing that work of therapy in your writing when you are thinking about publishing. And so I deeply believe like, if you're writing a memoir, if you're writing about something about trauma, get yourself a good therapist. <laughs> that is nope that is good advice actually I had a an, another <laughs> note no um one of my I'm gonna I wanted to like shift slightly uh in terms of books and not just talk about Lolita because another book that comes up frequently um in yours is the bell jar and I actually have a bell jar tattoo um it says I don't know if you can tell it says I, the, the typewriter says I am I am I am oh I love it <laughs> and I love it um you know for me it's it I got it as sort of a way to tell myself like no you are still here like I didn't make certain choices mm-hmm. previously during really bad bouts of depression and um I think that's another one of those books like when you know you when you're in high school or at a certain age you read it and it's just you're like, this is my life. You know, like it feels so personal to you. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I read the bell jar for the first time when I was early in high school, probably a freshman or a sophomore. And I still have my copy that I have. Things are like highlighted and like, there's like stars places. <laughs> I still have that copy of the bell jar that I read for the first time, you know, 20 years ago now. Yeah. Um, and the bell jar was in incredibly impactful and incredibly moving and that was probably one of the first books where I was like exactly as you said this is me this Mm -hmm. person understands me this is what I'm going through and it's very much a coming-of-age story it's a story about a young woman going through a tough time and trying to figure shit out um and you know it's about mental illness and -hmm. something interesting about the bell jar so I teach this to my undergraduate students one of the few novels that we read They always, I have never had a single student who has realized that in the end, she survives and she keeps going. Right. People oftentimes are like, well, the ending, it's kind of, you know, vague. I don't really know what this means. But then if in the first chapter, there's a reference to how she um, takes apart one of the things that that she got from that summer working with or being in that internship and gives it to the baby. So she's telling you, so there's, there's this point of telling in that book, Mm -hmm. even though the point of view is incredibly close to her going through this the entire time. And it's so beautiful and it's such an easy book. I think it's a great book that like teaches empathy and helps a reader understand um, what it's like to be in the midst of a really serious mental health crisis and like, you know, breaks down stereotypes and assumptions but there is this incredibly subtle point of telling that tells the reader in the beginning, I'm okay, I get through this. Yep. Um, but I've never had a single student catch that. Hmm. It's really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. That is, and I, you know, I guess it probably in some ways is not unlike Lolita in that if you know Sylvia Plath, you know what happens to her. So you maybe assume, you know, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's, it's literally one line. <laughs> one line in chapter one. So easy to miss it. Um, and again, because the point of view is so close. So beautiful right. to her and her experience. 
her builds this one line in the first chapter mm. to how she, she took like the the seashell off of the purse and gives it to the baby to play with one line one line and it's just like lolita in that you know there's like one line in right. the section that tells you lolita ends up dead yeah that refers to her as miss mrs robert schiller you have no idea who that person is She's never referred to that until the second to last chapter. She's not even referred to that. She's referred to as Dick's, he's referred to as Dick, you know? And it's just like, it's wild, wild, I think, how uh, voice and yeah. language can be so powerful and also manipulative. Right. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I kind of want to talk to you forever, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> can't because obviously there's life to live and jobs to do um so as a final question <laughs> um what do you hope readers take away from being Lolita you know I really I wrote this book in a lot of ways for 17 year old me um and I wish that this book can start conversations about issues of abuse in our own lives in our own real world and I hope that this book can, can make women, especially women who have had similar experiences, either you know, being abused by an older authority figure when they were younger, being in abusive relationships, just trying to figure yourself out and understand your you know, childhood and teenagehood, which are complicated, confusing, uh, times yeah. to put it, you know, uh, gently. Um, I really hope that this book helps illuminate readers' own lives and helps them understand, you know, not just their own lives, but also sort of the larger world and maybe gets people thinking about things in a new way. And I really, you know, no, no shade to the men out there, but I really, in some ways, wrote this book for women, for other women. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I also, I really hope that a I could read this book and be like, huh, never thought about it that way. Right. Um, but I, they're not my primary reader. I, I wrote this book for other women. Excellent. Allison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Talk to me. Thank you. This was wonderful. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.